What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Write Who You Know. This is the screenwriting podcast that is the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. Uh, I'm Matt Hausfeder. Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest. He was my office roommate on my very first staff job on NBC's Undateable. He is written on shows like Club de Cuervos that I also wrote on and ABC's hit drama series, A Million Little Things. Chris Lucy, everybody. Uh, his Insta handle is a boy named Lucy, which I tell you that because it's sort of like a boy named Sue, a little Johnny Cash thing going on there. Chris is going to talk to us about development. He is coming out of the bullpen hot with a warm pitching arm after having been on the staff of A Million Little Things for three years, and he is really excited to talk about it, and I'm really excited to have him uh, to get a different perspective. We're also going to talk about working together on, on a live comedy. We're going to talk about working on Club de Cuervos, which is one of the best Spanish-speaking Latin American television comedies in the history of Netflix. You should check it out if you haven't seen it. Club de Cuervos. Uh, I have a great accent, by the way. Uh, and other than that, we're just going to hang out and have a great time. So wherever you are, uh, home, car, on a jog, get ready to uh to to come back into Hollywood and screenwriter land this is another searing hot episode of right who you know pass nope we love Matt it's just a really hard time right now the industry's contracting come back to us and give some bigger attachments tell them right what you know no tell them right who you know 20 pods We've pitched so many pods, and four wanted to be involved. And but you got sixteen passes. Uh, yeah. Probably. And no, no. The only reason I'm asking you that is because I just started pitching something, and I got like two and a half passes. One of one of the passes was like, we literally have a competing project in this space. Yeah. And I was like, then why the fuck are you hearing this pitch? Totally. I mean, there was one that we went in, and they thought it was a comedy show. It's an hour long drama, like <laughs> scandal esque, and it was like like they. Some there was some miscommunication. They're like, "Oh, we're actually doing a bunch of comedies right now, so this is perfect." And we're like, "Oh yeah, but this is an hour long." And they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah." And they 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 pivoted, but they were like, "Hour long comedy, right?" <laughs> right. <laughs> that doesn't right. exist. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I've coming off the show. I really think of it as like it's a. New, I'm starting a new career. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm at this point. I'm focusing on on producing. I I think I have to because staffing is just so so hard. It's so impossible that like, and also now, you know, I've, I have 12 years experience. I'm a co-EP level. So the only chance I'm getting for jobs in general are a, if it's in a very close fit with like a million little things, since that's what I did, there aren't a lot of those shows out there. B the showrunner's a friend of mine and like, I'm the person they need to have or C I go on as like a consulting producer in a you know third or fourth season or something like that and i can bring something to the mix that they don't have um but those those opportunities are far and few are few and far between and uh you know now being a co-ep it's like i'm competing with people who have ran their own shows and done this like, like yourself and you were competing and, uh, with like john quaintance who has like 37 years of experience exactly, exactly which is so uh daunting and 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 tough you know and i'm also like look i had um three years on the show where i wasn't allowed to develop so which is standard you know yeah. um but i'm so ready to do that now and so excited to do it that uh i i really came into the season we knew it was going to be the last season of the show and i knew that um i wanted to be prepared and i'm really happy that i am and that all this is good it's funny to hear you say you're you're excited to develop because for the last year not even a year since july but even before that like when we when i knew fairfax was probably not coming back you know teddy and aaron and i focused on a bunch of development and um you know one of the things we're negotiating some of the things we're rebuilding but i've been doing it for, i'm like all i want to do is like get back on a show and right. everyone that i talk to including laura who you know you obviously know from undateable she's like why she's like why do you want to go be on someone else's show yeah. And I'm like, because it's the most fun I've ever had. And at five o'clock or six o'clock, it's like I get to turn my brain off and don't have to deal yeah. with 500 people's questions and problems. No, there's there's a safety to it that's amazing. And also, like, you know, you're getting paid and you know that, like, this is this is what it is. And, you know, four years of that for me was amazing. Like, you know, I was able to to move to a bigger house, buy a Ferrari. And, didn't get the Ferrari. <laughs> Still got my my minivan. But <laughs> it's but you did get some new rims on it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I pipped it out. Um but uh 
but there's definitely security in that. I mean, I think the the biggest thing I've learned, and I I don't know that I had this awareness on Undateable when we worked together or not, but it's like, it's it's just uh, taking joy in in the moment and and acknowledging where you are and what you're doing. I, there was a moment, it, the first time this really hit me was on Undateable, where we're like doing a live sitcom. I pitch a joke and it gets in, and it's like live to millions of people, and I'm like, it hit me. I'm never gonna do this again. Like it's it's almost impossible that there will be another live sitcom like that and all of those things will happen so it's like savor that moment savor that specific moment and just be enjoy it because like those are the things that that we'll have and we'll take away from these different jobs there's going to be ups and downs there's going to be bad parts to every job we have there's going to be fights and negotiations all that junk but you know i i i really believe in that and i think like for me on a million little things it's like being on set and being flown up to canada and like being on set and being able to work with actors and get an amazing performance from um like we had a transgender actor on our show this year and like being able to work with them and just give a heart heart-wrenching performance you know and seeing that all come together from the casting from the from the writing and and all of that coming together and being in that moment and being like wow this is something that we really have and something that, that we're going to be able to share with the world it was so cool and like I mean, never get another chance to do that, but just being in the moment and saying like, I can, I can, I, I have this and this is uh, something just to savor. Yeah, I'm glad you got to share your experience as a trans person. Actually, yeah. uh, <laughs> to, to, uh, well, <laughs> uh, so I guess l l you've had an interesting road on your way to writerdom and usually where I start is like, in some of these questions, you'll be like, Matt, I know you know this, but I, I want to bring sure. the audience up to speed. Chris, take me back for a second. Where did you grow up as a young boy? I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's right. Yep, and uh, and eventually went to college in K at uh, Case Western in Cleveland, and, um, and then when I was graduating there, I was split between film school, writing school, and law school. Oh shit! And you really had like a moment where you were like, which of the yeah, three? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So my I I knew that I I was not sure what I wanted, and I was like, I'm going to apply to all of them. And see what I get in, and see what it's going to be. And so, I ended up getting in. Um, I got an, uh, a scholarship offer to go to Fordham for law school. Wow! I got uh, into University of Pittsburgh's writing program, and I got into uh, Ohio University's film program. And I went to the film program. My parents were ready to kill me. You know, after they sort of primed me my whole life, I think, and, and were hoping my whole life, like, oh, you know, Chris is good debating whatever it's like he's, he would make a good lawyer he'll be happy he'd, he'd have a successful career this is going to bring happiness for him so um so when i said no to that i think they were just like what are you doing and i think they always thought like i i had moments before when i was young when i was like um i, I made this ivan the terrible uh report for cultures class in high school and i like shot it and directed and and, and edited it on like vhs back and forth oh yeah you know uh, on those um dual vhs machines exactly exactly so I made that with my friends and I loved it. Like, I, I mean, I spent hours like just perfecting that system and doing that. And, and, uh, and so I went to my dad and said, like, I think, I think I know what I want to do. Like, I, and he was like, yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Did he tell Basically. you it wasn't going to happen? Meaning like not on my watch or you won't be able to get, he was like that. People who know people get jobs like that, and that's not realistic. So you should do something realistic. So, uh, so uh, you know, I didn't know any better, and and I think he didn't know any better. He lived; he was a dentist in Pittsburgh. Like he doesn't know anyone out here. He doesn't know the system of how things work, and like that there is to some degree hierarchy and, and ways to climb up and do that stuff. So I think he was like, you know, let's let's be realistic and 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 focus on what what's going to work for you and what's work for for me because I think. Like me, I mean, like every parent wants their kids to have a happy and, to some degree, easy life. Yeah. And I think he was concerned that I was kind of all over the place and, and that uh, that it would go badly if I was just like going off on a, on, on a whim with this thing. So when did you move out to Los Angeles? So I moved out after, when I was in film school at Ohio, I took a uh, summer where I came out here and I like, I, I interned at a company reading scripts and then I um, I was a gaffer on this 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 independent feature that was just a mess i love that you're a gaffer I know. Like, that's incredible <laughs> yeah and then uh and then i actually was a i was a boom man on this short that these guys these people from the groundlings did who was it was like one person one it was a was a tv star to some degree like she was a side character on a show and a friend of mine like hooked me up with this this like gig for two weeks unpaid and uh i was the boom man on it 
and it was uh, it was a short film by Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone that they starred in and were amazing in. And I saw them, and I was like, these like I could barely hold the boom still because they made me laugh so hard with their improvs. They're amazing and so kind the whole time, and and awesome. And and all of that helped lead to my decision. Like, yeah, this is where I want to be. A lot of people from my program like go into teaching or do uh, experimental filmmaking, things like that. But I was like, I wanted to go to the industry for sure. So, so I moved out here. It'll be 20 years ago this October. Oh my god! And uh, and did that, and then got a job as quickly got a job as an accountant, <laughs> as a temp accountant, because, like a production accountant. No, no, like... no, no, no. Like it was for CBS, but it was like for like fig- helping them with sort residuals, basically. Got it. But it was just like I had an accounting degree undergrad, so it was something I could do while I, you know, made short films and did different things. Um, and then continued to do that for a few years while I, while I made a couple of short films. I had one that like got into a bunch of festivals and started getting, getting me some, um, exposure that way and taught me so much. Um, and then I moved into the world of music videos as an assistant there, uh, through just connections. I made it at, at my accounting job. Did actually. you do any cool uh, videos for like bands that, that I would know? Um, let's see, Paulina Rubio, um, uh, Queens of the Stone Age. We did the a live concert. No shit. Actually, yeah. What year was that? Do you remember? Two thousand six, probably. Two thousand five or two thousand. Was it for Era Vulgaris? Do you know that record? It was six six six? I'm not it? sure. I'm not sure. I bet you did it just the year that my buddy who produced this joined the band. Like literally, because he joined in like two thousand six. Oh yeah, it was it was like their live DVD. It was like a big live DVD release. Oh cool. And, and one of our directors, my boss was a music video producer, so she helped like she it's a in, in music videos that's kind of like a person who works as an agent you get the director's jobs and then you put stuff together so um um we had a, a, a you know a bunch of country videos hip-hop videos we all kinds of stuff but i saw quickly that like and i thought maybe i wanted to direct music videos but when the okay go video came out on the treadmills yeah we started hearing all the time that's what we want we want something that costs ten thousand dollars that will go viral <laughs> and I quickly saw and MTV was stopped playing videos. Yeah. There was Fuse and they were playing some things. But if you didn't do uh hip hop or country, like there weren't places for your work. We we represented Andy Morahan, who did the Guns N' Roses videos. Uh oh, like uh November Rain. Yeah, he did all of those. And we represented him and we couldn't find him work. That's crazy. And I was like, if that dude's not working, I think maybe I need to look around and find something else because I don't think I'm gonna work either. And and in music videos, you get directors make like ten percent of the budget. And when you do ten thousand dollar videos, it's like, You're like cool. I got a grand. Yeah, exactly. So, so I quickly saw like this is probably not a sustainable career. So, um, so I started looking around, and a friend of mine was an assistant at ICM, and her boss uh, uh, had a client who needed an assistant, and that was Victor Fresco. And um, I met on that, and my boss at music in the music video world like recommended me highly, and so I was really on top of stuff and whatever. And so I moved over and was became the showrunner's Victor's assistant. He was on My Name Is Earl at the time. Mm, cool. And then, uh, and then while I was there, he started developing Better Off Ted. I was there from the beginning of Ted till the end, including the, the writer strike in the middle. Oh Jesus! And then, uh, and then, uh, and then while I was there, at the end of it, I got into um, the Warner Brothers workshop, and that sort of started that that really launched me towards towards a writing career. Okay, let's of, let's yeah. stop there because that's what I want to. That's really, I, I think um, we haven't really, t- I haven't really touched on that. I mean, like Seth and Amy briefly talked about it, but so will you give everyone a little background on what these workshops are like and, yeah. and how you get in and, and how you specifically got in? Yeah. And I'll preface it by saying like Warner Brothers this year just cut this workshop. Yeah. Do you, and everyone went berserk on yeah, the internet. Yeah. Because and then they were like, no, 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 we're, we're going to keep it. And we're like, but they're no, not, you're not. They're not. It's, it's different. It's, it's changed in huge ways. Um, so Let's see where to start. So what it is, is it's a workshop that's been around for 40 years or so. And traditionally, um, they select, they have thousands of people apply. They take about 10, um, depending, the drama comedy mix depends on how many dramas and comedies they have on the air. Uh, my year, it was two comedies and like and like eight dramas, I think. And, um, and then they work with you for, it's a workshop that you go to for four or five months. And then once you finish um it finishes right around staffing season and then they put you on a sh- they, they have you meet with showrunners and if the showrunners agree to hire you the workshop pays your salary so it doesn't take anything away from the show's budget it just takes away from the workshop budget which is totally independent that's the thing they cut in the new version of it there's no budget 
for them to staff people. Got it. So, so they the can say they're not incentivized to bring you over because it's eating out of their budget. And they're like, why would I take a chance on an unknown? Exactly. Writer? Exactly. So it's, it's in that way, it's specifically totally different than what it was in the past. And, and, um, they tried to do it as a PR move, I think, to try to make it seem like it's the same, but it's not the same, unfortunately. And, and if you look now, like right now, um, uh, I mean, so many successful writers from the program from the time when I was there. The, uh, the, the year after, the year before me, I think the two sisters who created uh, Poker Face, the Zuckerman sisters. Oh wow! With uh, Ryan Johnson, they wow. they were in it. And the year after me, or two years after me, um, the woman who who created Megan was from it. So like huge, big things. There's great writers coming out of this program, and I think they did totally the wrong thing. They pushed good young writers away instead of. What they should do is sign us all to huge contracts. <laughs> sign us to four or five year first. Like Louis contracts. B. Mayer. Whatever. Yeah. Like yeah. like try to try to harness that talent instead of pushing it away. Because there is it's it's such a high end product you're getting out of it. So what did you write or like what did you have to yeah. submit to get into the program? So when I did it, and it's changed since, but when I did it, I had to do a spec. So I had submitted the year before. I think I had a curb spec, and that curb spec actually it won me it won a a contest. It was the first thing I ever won. So a writing contest um, from this guy on, online, and uh, you had a choice between a thousand dollar prize or a trip to China for three days. <laughs> what did you choose? I chose the thousand dollar prize, and my <laughs> wife was like, "You're crazy! Like, how can I go to China? You have to, you have to one lifetime thing." And I'm like, "I don't." Larry Brody is the guy who runs it. I don't know if he still does it or not, but but he was he was awesome, and and grateful for that that prize. It was a curb spec about. Uh, uh, Richard Lewis, if you you know the show, yeah. like like he, Richard, he, uh, Larry donated a kidney at some point to Richard Lewis, and Larry starts deciding like, look, you're gonna die before me, so I'm gonna want that kidney back. <laughs> and so then he's like invested in Richard's health to some degree, and he doesn't want him to sleep with a certain woman because he thinks that woman probably has STDs, and he doesn't want his kidney exposed to those STDs. So it's, it goes from there. But by the way, Chris, you having to go to China for winning a script contest is also an episode of Enthusiasm, <laughs> right? It's crazy. It's it's and for three days it was like you will stay with a, some friends of of Mr. Brody's and whatever. It was just like I just didn't understand all of it. I'm like, you I'm know what? Take I'll just the take the cash. Yeah, I'm gonna take the cash. Um. So anyway, so 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 then the next year came when it was time to apply, and it was between seasons on Better Off Ted. And I'm sitting there, and I have like the episode one, episode two, episode. I'm like, I need to write a better off TED spec. I'm like, if I can't do this as well, if I can't do this better than anyone else, I should just go back to Pennsylvania. So I buckled down, wrote my better off TED spec, and sent it off, and and that's what got me in. That and then as a writer, as a as a writer, it got me in, yeah as a writer. And um, there were some uh, great, you know, so many great co-eps on the show. Uh, and so many great producers in general on the show and people on the show. But um, uh, Michael Ross specifically, uh, he recommended me. He knew the woman run, uh, who on the studio side was involved with the workshop and recommended me to her. And I had you know great meetings with Chris Mack, the guy who used to run, who I'm still super tight with. He works for Netflix now and travel. He lives in Amsterdam and has an amazing amazing career of his own. But um, uh, yeah, so then I got in the workshop with... 10 other people and you know i'm super tight with most of them still it's 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 sort of our uh you know group therapy at times to to get through everything in this industry and the craziness that we all they're your community through. they're my community which is i know i know it's the reason you, i do this yeah exactly exactly yeah. so and it's it's tough because because in the, that community like everyone's at different places you know you have people who are running shows and you have people who are like struggling to get anything. And it's just, it's always a balance of like, of egos and everything else. But at the heart of it, we're, we're, we're able to put that down and be friends and be there for each other and, and, you know, um, and be able just to hang out too and not have to think about that stuff and not, you know, know that it's not based on your career. It sounds like you could sell that pilot to NBC right now. About <laughs> 10 friends that met at a writing program. They're all at different places in their lives, but they're still friends. That's two inside baseball, Matt. <laughs> I know, I know. No, 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 no. I like I, the camaraderie. No, it, it would be a good show, and people would like it, I think. Yeah, so that's just the come note. back to us if you get some talent attached. We'd be yeah. interested to hear what happens. Um, okay, so you must have beat out, like, thousands of people, or did it also help that you had recommendations from the TED Camp, et cetera? I think that helped after... I had a good interview, and then and then came the recommendations when they were kind of just down to the, the, the last whatever. Got it. Or whatever. I mean, there were just two comedy people my year. So, And actually, I met my friend Jesse, who's in it, who got in, too. I came in to sign in for the for at the workshop lot at the Warner Brothers lobby, you know the the lobby, and yeah. you go in and you like sign in, and I sign in and sit down, and this tall 
white dude is sitting across from me and he's like well, you here for the warner brothers uh workshop and i said yeah i said you he said yeah i said you drama or comedy he's like comedy and i'm like yeah me too fuck. <laughs> you're like fuck. like this guy's like a fucking carbon carb copy of me like there's no way we're both getting in and then we go the first night and we see each other like holy shit we both got in yeah that's awesome which you know um chris mack who runs a program was was like just we're just finding the best people and doing what we can with it and let the chips fall where they may and 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 that i think system worked really well yeah um and and was great so better off ted was your first staff writer job no i didn't get on better off ted oh okay so Uh, melissa and joey right no 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 no. it was called better with you better with you was your first much like better off ted which better off ted got canceled and then better with you on abc got picked up uh which was confusing i think because of the same name and that was run by uh shauna uh goldberg and greg malins and so they were both friends alums. Um, so it, we had three friends writers on there, and we had so many talented young writers coming up too on it. And it was my first time, really, just having a chance to pitch in a room and learn everything. And uh, we went twenty one se- twenty one episodes, which was which was huge. Yeah, you probably worked all year. We we worked all year basically. And and my agreement with them because at first the workshop was like we don't have enough money to staff Chris for the whole season by that point because i kind of got staff late compared to some of the other people and so uh the sean and greg i think they wanted to bring me on but they weren't sure they were gonna have money to to keep me the whole time um but i wrote them a letter before i started saying like you know uh i would love the chance even if you have to let go let me go after the first 13 like no problem I'll, i'm totally cool with that whatever so when we got picked up everyone's cheering and i'm just kind of like oh, yeah, i don't know what's gonna happen but then they came to me and said like no 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 we're, we got you like we got this you're, you're good to go awesome so um so i got to stay for the full season and wrote a couple scripts and i it was great i think i was wait chris quick question as a staff writer and i know a lot of people talk about this did they pay you for the for your scripts or were no. they were got it no 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 um um this just was the way it was especially back then yeah they, um, for those of you listening out there as a staff writer they do not pay you for your scripts right uh normally they do at any other level you get like you know i don't know what the minimum is now probably like twenty eight thirty thousand dollars but uh which is a huge chunk of change especially when you're a staff writer but uh, they don't when you're a staff writer which is ridiculous right i i will say when you when you first start and the the money a staff writer makes is really good too so oh, at first yeah. you're like okay that's fine it's just when other people started get, everyone else is getting paid extra for that and you're like oh but i'm the only one that doesn't get that you yeah know, that's that's a lot and it's funny because like you needed more than anyone because you're like just starting out and these are people that are probably well established and you know right right and also getting the yeah yeah for sure but uh anyway so so where was this? So, so yeah so i oh when i started i think i was a little bit i came into my own okay i was nervous but i was okay and then i was getting stuff in so i felt good but around the halfway point, I saw the assistants really stepping up their game and really getting a lot of stuff in. And I started to get super neurotic. And I felt like uh, I didn't have anyone necessarily in the room that I could turn to. Um, I loved everyone in the room. I think I was just too proud to, to, to go to them and be like, I think I'm not doing a great job. It sounds like, you know, it's like men who don't want to ask for directions on the way. Exactly. It's the same exactly. And, and so I was like, I I got neurotic about the whole thing, and I was doing I was doing fine, I think still, and I think they would have brought me back for a second season. I think they they might not have even felt that as much as I did at the time, but it was like the pressure was was so great at times, and I was so anxious about all of it. And 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 when you when you're in that state and you're trying to be funny, it's the worst because yeah. you're not. You're yeah. just you're just struggling and drowning, you know. Um, so it taught me a lot, and. You know, uh, 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 we all thought for sure the show was going to be picked up. We thought like, oh, if they pick up, it was a multicam, and it was like if they pick up uh, the Ted Allen show, um, Last Man Standing, like we're guaranteed they don't have any other multicam, so we're going to be picked up, and we're going to we're going to be on with them. And then it got canceled. Ugh. And part of that is, you know, it was a Steve McPherson developed show. Steve McPherson had been like over ABC as always like when the presidents change anything can happen and yeah. so we weren't a big enough hit i mean we were getting our low was like a 1.7 1.8 that's crazy <laughs> you know it's yeah. funny uh i was talking about this with laura undateable was doing like 0.8s and 0.9s on a friday night with the news as a lead-in now abbott elementary is doing like 0.2s and people are like oh my god it's a huge success like yeah. people would kill for the numbers that we had yeah. just 10 years ago yeah it's great it's it's wild so um you know but i i 
learned so much and was grateful for everything. And then, and then, uh, just keep, just keep going. Whatever, whatever you want. I, I mean, I, I'm just waiting for you to get to when you walked into your office and saw that I was uh, your roommate. Right. All right. So after that, I, I, um, I had a script that I'd written actually in the workshop that sold, um, to ABC family. Um, it was about a, my wife's Peruvian and one of her good friends, um, was dating a woman and wanted to stay in the States, but at the time it wasn't legal. So she married her brother. Um, so it was about that and that relationship. And it, it changed a little bit. The guy was, was a sort of Alex, modern day Alex B. Keaton, white conservative guy, and he needed the money for something. So it was like, you know, uh, opposite, odd opposite track, odd couple kind of thing. And, uh, and they bought it and then didn't, didn't do anything with it. You know, it took a year to, we worked on it some for a year and then they passed and I didn't work. So that was, that was, uh, you know, May of 2011, probably. And then I didn't work for, uh, besides selling that, I didn't work for a year and eight months or something. Oh my my daughter was born in the middle. Oh my, God. my wife got laid off like oh right my before God. my daughter was born. And it was like, what are we going to do? Um, you know, I was out for staffing and I was, there were, there were multiple jobs. The, the, one of the biggest horror stories was, um, the, the year after, uh, that show went down, I was out for staffing season and I met on a show and I won't get into what it was, but I met on a show and I was like the first meeting they had. They loved my script that I had written and they, they loved me and they were all about it. And they were like, this is great. Like, and, and I'd met with like the, the second in command and, and her, uh, and, and the uh, producer, the line producer, the executive producer, but non-writing producer. Yeah. Right. So, um, they they were all about me they're like do not go anywhere else without telling us and at the same time i had a a meeting for a disney show that was like a, a puppet thing and uh which was funny and nice and the showrunners were were from you know adult shows and were cool um but uh the disney show i ended up getting an offer on pretty quickly and the other show was like we're not picked up yet so we can't but they told my guys don't let chris go anywhere and so then it came down i was i had to either take the Disney show or wait for the other show. And it looked like the other show was going to get picked up because everything in the trades was like, this show's going. So we turned down the Disney show because even, you know, I have a six month old at home and I'm like, but I'm like, okay, turn down the Disney show. Cause I'm like afraid of the getting stuck in kids TV or whatever that would be. And this other shows up, it's a big, you know, it's a big item for NBC. And, uh, and the next day, they call my agent. We get, they get picked up. My agent calls and they're like, yeah, sorry. It's just not going to work for Chris. And they pass on me. And so the show goes to air and I don't have a job <laughs> again. Dude, were you like, call Disney back, call Disney back, get Disney. It's too late. And actually, I met with that. Those showrunners brought me in later when they needed somebody. They had me come. I met, I was in the writer's room and stuff. And then they passed on me. <laughs> again? Else. That, the Disney show passed on me. That okay. Time. It was like, it was a joke. I was just like, I don't, I, you know, I can't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm drowning here. Like, I didn't know what to do. It's a miracle that you didn't jump off a bridge, uh, yeah. and that you're sitting here today hearing yeah. that story because yeah. it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, they told me, they said, they said, don't, they, what they said right before, the day before, two days before, when we were deciding what this is show, it was like, uh, don't like, it was, it was, don't let Chris go anywhere else, basically. Like, we'd hate to lose him. That's what they said. We'd hate to lose him. And then two days later, they were like, yeah, we think we can. <laughs> so is fucking loony too. Yeah. I mean, like, how can you make a rational decision when that's on the other side? So so then the following December, I got on Melissa and Joey, um, which I had met on the year before, and they went a different direction. But this year, they were like, they 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 hired me. And I was on that uh, as a staff writer. Again, classic. I had done 20 episodes at that point as a staff writer. So then I did Melissa and Joey. We did 17 episodes. We were waiting for the next season pickup, and our bosses went to meet, and they met with the with the, the network, and the network, was, the network was like, we're not picking up for another season, but we're going to give you 20 more episodes in this season. So nobody got bumped. <laughs> so then I had 20 more episodes, so that's 37 episodes of Melissa and Joey, and 20. Who's of, the studio on, on Melissa and Joey? It was... Uh, it was through ABC Studios, I think. ABC, Got it, but ABC. they made you be a staff writer for like 35 episodes without bumping you. Yes. yes. Do you think that's the fault of the showrunners or like no, the they, studio? They, they paid us for our scripts. They, oh, okay. They paid us for our scripts. But not, they didn't season. increase your weeklies or... No, that's fucking no. I mean, so they started paying, because they felt so bad for us, they started paying us for our scripts. And uh, and then the next year, they cut the budget on Melissa and Joey, and um, they let go of half the writing staff. 
because they just couldn't keep everybody and they it was like it was this or the show's going down did they were you one of the ones that i was one of the ones that got cut and i was kind of like in disbelief like my i had an episode in there that was basically what i wrote and what was the table draft was the shooting draft like it's the most it, it probably the, the and, and by this point i wasn't like finding joy in things but now i would say like that would be like something i would not notice and be like this is huge like, yeah it was word for word what i wrote yeah um and and still to this day actually it's one of the highest rated melissa and joey episodes i know that's do you get residuals for that yeah i i, I get better residuals from melissa and joey than anything else because it's on hulu oh and whatever but so uh so i i got let go on that in may of the year we met and then like three months later or whatever october i got brought on undateable um had a great meeting and you know did you meet with who did you meet with I'm when you Steve interviewed Hill. i met yeah, me too yeah and um and you know the workshop i think the workshop gave a little bit of money too still because to, they had some money that year to, to help me out to help cover my salary but they only could bring me on as a staff writer they couldn't bump me to story editor so by that point i had 60 plus episodes going into undateable and i did another 20 at staff writer uh on undateable until my last episode i could bump this, this, this story editor for we, one we could do a whole episode on how fucked up all of the <laughs> all of the staff writer stuff is but like yeah. i won't i won't get into it but uh that's heartbreaking that for three different times they're like staff writer, staff writer yeah staff writer. i mean it, i think it's story editor is basically double the money I, I think honestly like i get the guild not ever wanting to give money back but i think that we should have i think story editor money should be less i think it should be less than you can make as a producer and so it's a more gradual ascent. And yeah. so it's easier to get that bump because that bump is so crazy. Yeah. You know, I always assumed like, I'll just staff, like once I got on Undateable, which is obviously for us, we know, but it's a Bill Lawrence show. I remember calling my managers and being like, I'm going to work forever. This guy's going to have TV shows for the rest of his life. Right. And obviously, you know, the way the wind blows is up and down and left and right. And, and, and no matter who you are, um, the tides change. Uh, but sure. so you, we meet in October, okay, of 2014. Was it that sound? Yeah, that sounds right. That's yeah, right. 2014. Um, we were office mates, we were it well, was, we weren't at first. The first season, we weren't, then second season, we were. I was with Seth and Amy, and then I was with you the second season. Oh, that's so right. You were with Seth and Amy, yeah, that was hilarious. Didn't they put your whole desk in the bathroom, or was that Hobart? No, I put Amy and I played a joke on Hobart and put we put his whole desk and his phone and his computer and everything in the in the men's room. <laughs> There's video of you cheerfully like joining, going along with us and like laughing about it. Yeah, that was, uh, and I've said this before, but like that was the most fun job I've ever had. Just like yeah. there was stuff like I don't know if you remember this. Craig Doyle had like a little Bluetooth speaker, and he would put on smooth jazz and then like roll it into the writers' room and do a smooth jazz bomb, is what he called it. Yeah, I just remember him every time the phone rang. It was always that same ringtone, and he would just like Play drum, <laughs> drum hardcore to whatever the to the to the beat of it. It was amazing. It was, uh, it was a great room. So should we talk about Undateable for a second? Yeah, let's do it. Um, that was my first job. I had no clue what the hell I was doing. Uh, but people like you and others were incredibly nice to me. And, uh, you know, I know we talked about Leatherman on Seth and Amy's. Um, but I, I really, it was the first time that I really felt like, oh, I, I this is what I want to do forever. Like, I thought this is what I want to do forever. And it is true. And I'm so happy. And these people are amazing. And, um it really just put me on this path of like, I want to do this forever. And I think that's where my love of staffing comes from. Like my reps and anyone I talked to was like, why do you want to be on a staff? And I'm like, I'm just trying to replicate those moments um, that we all share together. Yeah. I hear that. I think I was like that a lot more in my first show. I was like, we're like, it's like, we're like best buddies now, you know? And then you realize over time, like you're coworkers, <laughs> like, and that's tough. And it's challenging because, it's uh, coming in you think like even when you're like if you're if you're uh pas together and like and like you, you got to deal with the same shit you're getting lunches together doing all that stuff and you bond in a way where you are friends and that's genuine but i think in a room like you have to you have to get along with everybody yeah. and i think that there are writers who will will just be like look i'm not going to be outward i'm not going to show you the signs that i don't like you to your face so i'm just going to hold that in sort of and Toler tolerate you not that i did this to you <laughs> this is what it sounds like it's but no i know but, you. i know you like me but like uh i think it's a, a trap that young writers can fall into where it's like oh we're best friends and like everyone's going to be brought back for next season of the show no matter what and we're all good to go and everything's cool and we're buddies and it's like it's at times it's hard to distinguish the line if you have nice bosses it's hard to distinguish the line between 
coworkers and friends. And it's in it, that's a struggle when you realize like you get out and then you ask for a recommendation from someone you thought was a friend and they're not willing to give it to you, you know, which is you had that. Yeah, I've had that happen before. Wow. That's tough. That's like, oh, I totally misunderstood what was going on. <laughs> you know, when you asked for a recommendation and did they did someone tell you no or did they you just didn't get a response? It was like, uh, I don't really know that person that well or um, yeah. whatever, whatever it was. But I I at that point, I was like, oh, like either I wasn't doing as good a job as I thought or this person doesn't really like me and like yeah. it is what it is. And that's tough, I think, because especially for when you're on your first show, you're just trying to like you're trying so hard, you know? Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, that's the way it goes. And I'm sure I've worked with younger writers where it's like uh, 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 tricky if you have that situation, you know, um, where it's like someone who's trying so hard, but maybe they try too hard and it's disruptive in the room or maybe they don't try hard enough or whatever that is. Maybe, you know, they, they uh, uh, fault find too much. And if you fault find too much, even if I like you as a person, like it's hard for me to recommend you to a friend of mine because I'm like, this person's going to not do well for my friend. Yeah. And that's a tough, it's a tough thing. It's also hard because you have to, if someone recommends you, they're putting their ass on the line. And so you have to perform. And if you don't, it's going to make the person that recommended you look like a moron and also might tarnish your relationship with them if they get negative feedback on completely, you. Completely, completely. So, yeah. Um, so it's a tricky balance. But and the thing to keep in mind is it's a job. And we're all it's it doesn't feel like that at times because we're we're having fun and playing pranks and putting people's stuff in the bathroom and whatever. But uh, but it's it can be tricky like that. Uh, so here's here's where I want to take next, Lucy. So I um, I a few months ago, we do Undateable Live season three. It's a blast. You can't watch it anywhere, which is unfortunate. But yeah. um, after I go and work on a Spanish soccer comedy called Club de Cuervos. Yes, sir. When I do this, everyone is like, basically, like, I, I remember getting teased for getting this job. Like, House is going to write a fucking Spanish soccer company. I was like, yeah, they're paying, they're paying American dollars, and that's what I need to eat. So, yes. And, and you got a, what was your level? They promoted me. I think I was like a co-producer. Right. Which was insane. Right. Which, but it's legit. Like, right. Yeah. Um, and I remember they guaranteed me two scripts, which I was like, oh, shit, that's fucking gangster. Um, but I also remember like the initial offer for that show. For those of you out there, uh, Mexican television is kind of like the Wild West, and they don't really adhere to the rules of American television. They, they, you know, it is it was a Writers Guild show, but there were like ways that they could skirt that. So like my initial offer was like we're going to pay Matt X for however long the season goes, and my reps were like, no, yeah. in America you pay people on a weekly rate or episodic based on their on their level. Um, so I go. To Mexico City, uh, I work on this show that is incredibly turbulent uh, and difficult, mainly because uh, for no other reason than as any showrunner, you have to be in three places at once. And that's a very hard job. You have to be on set, in the edit bay, and in the writer's room. And I think for the the dude who was at the top of that show, he was a brilliant mind, but he couldn't be in three places at once. He didn't really have a solid number two. And as much as there was a showrunner... I think it was a, it was a pretty tall order to say bring everyone to Mexico City, break all of the episodes in two weeks, and then go back to America and write those episodes. Which was like, huh? Um, the long and short of it is, is I was not brought back for what season did you go to work on? Season four, right? Okay, so Chris takes my job on Club de Cuervos because I because I get fired. <laughs> I, I don't think I take your job. No, no not at all. Um, I'm just teasing you. But I love that, like. What serendipitous, I don't know if you want to call it karma, but like I was able, I, I don't, did I re recommend you to them? I feel like I might have to I don't Russell. Know. I don't know. I, I'll tell you from my point of view. Yeah, how please tell me, okay. tell me, so, your, tell me. Your, so I remember, I remember having lunch with you or something at your old place and, and you telling us about, oh, you're going to go on this show. And I was like, what's that? And I didn't know anything about it. And I knew you're getting co-producer and that's great. Meanwhile, I wasn't working again. I, after Undateable, I didn't work for a long time. I, I, uh, I took a. I did one job as an Uber driver. One one day, I, I uh, one night I drove for an, as an Uber driver. Why did you decide? What made you be like, "Fuck this, I'm out"? I d well, the next day, a friend called me and got me a copywriting gig. 
Oh, wow. So I got this gig like writing, it was writing like these online games for uh, Walking Dead for Facebook Messenger, uh-huh. where like you would, you would like, it was like a chatbot game almost. And I wrote this whole like choose your own adventure thing for them. And, and that was paying better than I was doing for Uber. So I, so I was able to stop doing that. But that's, that was it. I was doing in between Undateable and when I went to Club de Corvus, that's what I was doing. And so I eventually, I, I had, uh, after you started working on it, I started watching some of Club de Corvus and I really liked it. Yeah, it's a very good show. It's, it's, it's really good. And really, of all the shows I've been on, it's one of my favorites for sure. It's just um, edgy and funny, filthy, like so ridiculously filthy in parts that it's amazing. Um, and, uh, I, I told my reps, oh, I want to, I want to be on this. I want to be put up for this. So I believe they sent my stuff. Yada, yada, yada. I get a, I got a meeting with Russell and, um, and he likes me and they bring me on for the show. And I didn't know where you, I didn't know what your situation was at that point. I found out later that my reps never sent my stuff to him and, he had gotten it from someone else, a friend of his in a different production company, I think Ellen's production company or something, that liked my script. And that was a mix of drama and comedy. He sent it to Russell because he's like, hey, this person might be right for your show. And then he hired me for the show. Incredible. <laughs> it's crazy, right? And th- yeah, so reps, reps, whatever. But uh, uh, so then I got on the show and then I found out that you weren't going to be there. And I, 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 as I understand it too, like the guy who ran the room the, the season that you were on wasn't there anymore. Correct. And that you were tighter with him. And so, like, I wasn't even tighter with him. And I, I you know, when Russell called, it's so funny. I remember exactly where I was. Um, I was in the backyard of my, one of my Fairfax co creators' house when we were writing the pilot of fit, they're writing the pitch doc for Fairfax. And I thought he was calling me to be like, hey, Matt, we start in two weeks. Like, da 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 da. And he called and he, First of all, like wasn't my boss at the time on my season. Right. He became the showrunner. So I was like, there's no way this guy's firing me. And he did. And I asked him, I was like, can I ask you like why? And he was like, honestly, like your scripts totally didn't really align with the show. And I was like, you're right. Like, and that's okay. And it was nice. I honestly like, sure, I was upset for a little bit, but he was right. And that I was trying to write about something which I didn't really know about under a lot of duress in Mexico City and a lot of the time like I did not want to go to work like by the end of it it was it was pretty bad and like any other yeah. writer that was on my season would probably tell you that um and I love all those people it was just you know some some situations are hard and right well you also had you know the the director Gaz he was he was the creator and it was his vision in the end and you you had someone else running your season that uh that they his vision didn't align with the with gases, I'm guessing. Correct. And so, like, when you have that, like, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be hard. Yeah, like, I turned in my script, and that particular showrunner that was working for Gaz was like, this is great, Matt. Like, I have I have a couple changes for you. but And I was like, oh, my God, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I thought, like, my scripts were, were pretty good, but apparently, like, they didn't really fit with they – were, they were too comedic, and they weren't drama-heavy, and I think that show is, like, a very good balance of both um, – and so I totally understand what it didn't bring me back. And honestly, if anyone was going to pick up the mantle, I'm glad it was someone that I knew like you because, A, I knew you would be wonderful and would totally fit that show because you are a wonderful mix of drama and comedy, which is what we're going to get to in a moment. Yeah, yeah, we're going there. Right? Uh, um, but yeah, what was your experience working on Club de Cuervos? I mean, it was it was challenging in this way of like two steps forward, one step back all the time. I loved Russell. I loved uh, Matt and Brett and and Marcos and Marcos and, Bukai, and so many people. Out. And actually, the show I'm developing, I'm developing with Lauren, who I first met on uh, on Club de Cuervos. The thing we're taking out right now, we met on that, and then we both worked on a million little things the following year. Amazing, just crazy, just just randomly staffed because we have similar tastes and tones and stuff. So, um, but it was a it was a, it was crazy and ridiculous and totally like. R-rated conversations all the time that were that were fun and weird and whatever. Um, the frustrating part, I think, was that Gaz is a director first. He he comes from a director heavy media to medium too, which is fe- feature films. And so for him, it's like his vision is is what it will be. And again, we were like writers and and our and and working in a writers room. You think your vision is what it'll be, and so I think that clashed at times. Um, so what happened a lot was we we would break stuff and find stuff that we loved and then once gaz heard it he would he would not be sure that that's what he wanted to do and so stuff got blown up a lot yeah i we, think we, i think we developed a lot of good pieces though it was we were we worked for 20 weeks on it we, we developed all these pieces 
And then it kind of went in a blender. And then Gaz made an amazing season from it. So he got what he needed to, to do something great with. But the process was hard because we're like, this is the vision as we see it. And this is how we think it would go together. And then that would get blown up. Yeah, we had similar stuff where like we were trying to develop stuff for the characters and, you know, Chava and his sister, uh, Isabel. And like we would get these things from Gaz like we need to be discussing the players agreement and how fucked up that is in the Liga. And we'd be like, dude, nobody watching this show is really going to care about the inside baseball of soccer. I think they're going to I mean, they might, but I think they're watching it because it's a very rich world and the characters and it's brother versus sister in a weird way. It's like this comedic version of Game of Thrones, which is how he pitched it. Um, but set in the world of soccer. And so we were always butting heads of like, dude, nobody wants to know what's actually going on in soccer. Like you can you can do whatever you want within this fun world. And I think that's where the showrunner of my season and Gaz sort of butted heads. Sure. Yeah, I get that. And I think I think that we had some of that too a little bit. But I and I think that I think that Gaz in like he liked he loves to talk politics. He loves to get into that stuff. And I do too. I mean, we it was during like the 2016 election, so it was all crazy and we were talking about all that stuff constantly. So we were we were getting into those feelings. But I think once like if you watch the show, a lot of that's not in it because in the end Gaz didn't want that in it, but it's easy to get get into that while you're in conversations and 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 excited by it. So okay, so Cuervos ends season 4. Is that Cuervos what you, you wrote on season 4? Yeah. Okay. Because I always forget what season Yeah, the, the show ended. Uh, we wrote in the final season. Yeah. Okay. Um, by the way, it is a great show. If you do have Netflix, which you probably do, you should go watch Club de Cuervos. It's fucking awesome. Uh, for all, the trouble it, it, it took to make it, it really was was worth it. Um, so after that, though, you go to A Million Little Things. Right. So I had met with DJ Nash, the creator, uh, the year before. Sorry, I will focus on the mic more. I, I go to that. Uh, I met with him for a comedy, actually. Uh the year before that it looked like it was in good shape to get picked up it was with john crier starring and um we had a great conversation uh by this point i had written i have a heart condition which i discovered while i was on undateable that's right i remember that right and i had written a script a, a pilot script about that that was really sort of heartfelt and a, a true mix of comma and uh, comedy and drama comma you know <laughs> i'm inventing words comma chameleon comma. so uh so I wrote that and I met with DJ and he's always writes that kind of stuff, like blends of drama and comedy to some degree. And, and so I was up for a comedy. He was going to hire me on that show. And I was actually in the lobby of ABC waiting for my meeting with ABC when they announced that they weren't picking it up. <laughs> I'd like to see the deadline article while I'm waiting to meet with them. They go in, they're like, so do you like any of our other pilots? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, like I like the, the one that uh, just died on the vine. Yeah. But so, I also like money. So yeah. Right. So I, so that was actually before I got on Club de Cuervos, but the following year, uh, A Million Little Things uh, had some openings, and I had followed the show, I had followed what it had done and the mysteries that were in it in the first season and everything, and I, I really liked it. And, and um, I reached out to DJ, who actually, when he didn't hire me in the first season, he said, it's not a no, it's a not now. And I'm like, this is, this is bullshit. Like, you know, everyone says that. Yeah. But he actually reached out to me, he emailed me halfway through my season on Club de Cuervos and was like, hey... Just want to see how you're doing, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, maybe there's something we can work on in the future. Or maybe maybe there'll be space on the show. We'll see. And there was. And so um, so I met with him. I met with David Marshall Grant, an amazing writer who uh, who was a sort of second in command at the show at the time. And um, and they brought me on for the for the second season of the show. And then I was on it for the second, third, fourth, and fifth. So I just finished the fifth season of that. Wow. Okay. So what was your level on Cuervos? Uh, that's a great question because... So they offered me co-producer uh, in my offer. And my guys went back and said, look for this money. We want it higher. And they said, okay, we'll make him a co-EP. So I was co-EP. Then we did the show and then um, and worked on it. And and there were times I felt like, man, I'm not being traded like the co-EP. Like I, I, there were times I wasn't getting, I wasn't leaving the room sometimes and stuff. I was just like, that's weird, but whatever, you know, showrunner's choice. So then the show was premiering and it, they're like, oh, there's a surprise in there for you because we really like your, the work you did. And so I turn on the, uh, it, it streams that day and I turn it on. And in the opening credits, I see my title as uh, supervising producer, which is below co-EP. <laughs> and I'm like, that's the surprise? It's like, welcome to Mexico, dude. Yeah. So I like reach out to Russell and I'm like, hey, like, like just wondering what, what this is all about. I was like, I was in my contract, it's co-EP. And he was like, wait, what? And I said, yeah, I was co-EP. And he said, they never told me that. I always, 
we just got your initial offer, I guess, that was co-producer. So we thought you were a, co- a co-producer. So we put you at supervising as a like gesture that we liked your work. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Dude, you, you, you demoted me as a gesture. Yeah. So my level again, we're like staff writer for however many episodes. One episode on the end of Undateable as a story editor. Co-EP on Club de Crows, even though it's credited wrong. And then for a million little things, I was brought on as a co-producer. So I was co-producer, producer, supervising producer, and then this year co-EP. Hell yeah. So so here, okay, so you get on a million little things. Yeah. What is the difference between working in a comedy room, in your opinion, and yeah. a in a straight drama, dramedy, comma, whatever you want to call it? What are the differences right. between straight up comedy and straight up drama rooms and the way that you guys break story or operate as a as a team? Well, I, I'd say it's a little tricky because um, a lot of people, a lot of drama writers on our show would say that it would it operated as a comedy room almost because that's what DJ knew and that's kind of the way he did it. So we broke stories a lot together. Um, we outlined. He was DJ's method was we write a sort of ten page pitch document for every episode as we're like putting the stories together, and then we pitch that to the network or studio, and then. Once they sign off on it, then the writers of the episode take it and they go and they do like a 20 page outline, very detailed. And, and it has, it can have jokes in there. It can have quotes in there, whatever we want. It has a lot in there. And then, um, once that's approved by everybody, then you just sort of stretch that out into the script. And a lot of it's all, a lot of the work's already done by that point. The hardest part I think is really outlining phase on the way we did it on that show. Um, I think, you know, the difference is you're not having run throughs, obviously, the table reads don't mean anywhere near as much because first we were the, the last three episodes or the last three seasons I was on it, we were on Zoom. So they were Zoom table reads. You can't tell if jokes work or not. I mean, on our show, nobody was laughing and it wasn't for Studio Network, it was just for us. Yeah. So you never knew really if jokes worked until until you were actually on set doing it. Um, so that was big. I mean, there's not pressure to be funny in a in a drama room which is nice you can get away with like a c plus joke <laughs> and everyone's like that's amazing you're fucking you hilarious that? you're like you yeah guys don't like, even know yeah exactly <laughs> i mean look i was trained on undateable it was such an amazing training for for writing jokes where it was like it's three o'clock in the morning if you want to go home write a, write a write a funny joke and you get to go home yeah you know and that sharpened my comedy skills so much the one of the things by the way one of the, the the core memories i have of undateable it's like three in the morning we're about to go home it's thursday night we tape on friday Bill says, everybody come in with a topical joke tomorrow morning just in case we want to punch up in the last minute. Mike Hobart, without skipping a beat, goes, you heard him, boss. Tropical drogues, beaches, sand, daiquiris. <laughs> like, it just made me laugh. So I think about that all the fucking time. Yeah, that's great. It's, um, sorry to interrupt you. No, right no, now. no. It's all good. Like, that's, like, that, that, that's the kind of thing that like, like room bits, all that stuff, that happens to some degree, but it's just at a different level. I mean, our room was such a bunch of heavy hitters on undateable too so many just amazingly funny people yeah that like you had to be on or be aware that anything can be a bit constantly and on a on a drama it's not like that uh it's a lot more just 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 people being people there's a lot more tears a lot more like opening up and telling stories about real shit that you've been through which which is good and um it felt like a safe space to do that you knew no one was gonna like with you. I don't. I mean, I. I don't think I've been on a show where the room is. Uh, there are bullies in the room that would like not let you do that. Um, but there are shows I've heard about certainly where if you like opened up and told something true from your past or whatever, like people would hold that against you, or people would make fun of you, or people would you know not be sensitive about it. Yeah. Right, so God. so like being able to do that and tell stuff. I mean, for me, like talking about my heart shit that i went through i actually had i had open heart surgery during my second season on um, during christmas break uh, uh while i was on undateable but be, or sorry while i was on uh on a million little things but um because we were on zoom i really didn't miss much time i was back pretty quickly and they kept being like you could take one like no i want to be back like this hurts and <laughs> i'd rather be focused on that than on anything else i love it did it hurt when you laughed like oh, God. oh fuck <laughs> uh no but um no, not really. Good. <laughs> that was good. Good. I did like I did while I was still in like in intensive care, I did a like Christmas Zoom, I think, with them. And I don't remember much of what I said. I was like pretty 
fucked up. Everything was beeping in the room, and they were like, "Can't you get that beeping to stop?" And I'm like, "No, they they it just beeps all the time. It drives me insane." Chris, can you go on mute? Uh, we're hearing your dialysis machine or whatever. Your <laughs> your right? heart defibrillator. I think I did share that they had to, as part of any major operation like that, they have to shave you from head to toe. Oh man! <laughs> well, from neck to toe. I should Got say. It. So like, in a comedy room like that would be fucking hilarious and oh, fun yeah. to talk about. In a drama room, I'm like. Yeah, maybe that was too much. Maybe I overshared or whatever, but you know. Yeah, I'm the king of overshare. So like I would love to and I feel like most of the industry is like going dramatic. Even shows like Elizabeth Home and Theranos, Winning Time, People vs. OJ, like all of these like big pop Pam and Tommy, they're dramatic and they have moments of levity or like a very irreverent tone to them. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's where like the state of comedy is going, but for the, you know, ghosts or Abbott or you know, night court now, which like there is like this moment where like people want comedies again, and I'm like, oh, thank God. Yeah, um, yeah. I that's that's one of the reasons I think I I moved. I I one thing I didn't like about network TV was like that you have to have this. There's this thing about having lessons and heartfelt couch moments, as we used to call them on Undateable, that I just think they're I think they're fake. I don't. I don't like shows like that. Like I was always a Seinfeld person. I wasn't a friends person. Like I, and I know it's funny because I'm on a million little things where the friends do everything for people, but like, that's not for comedy specifically. I don't find that funny. I don't, I don't find it funny. And I don't think you need to do it. I don't think you saw that on like news radio or, or Seinfeld certainly where it was like, no, people at their heart are selfish and that's funny. And it's okay that that's what we portray in comedies. You know, it's like, yeah, they're not likable people in some ways, but that's okay. It's funny. It, it gets to our, our base instincts yeah, and our shocking instincts, which is good for comedy. Absolutely. Um, so I'm hoping that more shows pop up like that, that, that you don't have to, you don't have to be nice. <laughs> it's funnier if you're not. <laughs> and you don't have, and you know, when you, it gets to the point where it's a joke on itself, it's like every, every episode, it's like, Oh look, he actually turns out that he is a good friend. Like that's not a, it's just phony yeah. and, and, and takes up real estate where you could be making funnier jokes. Yeah. Um, okay, so Million Little Things is over now. You're going back yes. to, you're going to do some development. Yes. Got some searing hot pitches lined up. Hot pitches lined up. Um, yeah, on drama and comedy. Wow. So I'm working on, on, on everything. I mean, to me, it's just, I realized that like, that what, what I like is um, change. And I like development. I like stories that, that, I mean, multicam's not like this. Multicam, it's sort of the same story again and again and again. It's the girl, golden girl sitting sitting and having pie or cheesecake, sorry, at the end of the at the end of the episode, and and that's fine. But that's not really the thing I like the most. The thing I like the most is actual change over time to see characters develop and do. And Cuervos did that really well. You saw Chava at the beginning and Chava at the end, and even over the season, you saw like the change in them and the growth. Um, and shows like Breaking Bad, I think, are great examples of how, for good or bad, people change. And and on comedy, Eastbound and Down, I mean, uh, you start with this guy who's such a fucking asshole and such an antihero, and then um, where it ends is is kind of out there, but like it's I still like finale. It's still like such a great like he becomes a a decent person and he finds himself versus, I mean, the the, the soul of that show to me is like in the pilot when he's such an asshole, but him crying himself to sleep at night. Because he hates himself so much, and that's like this deeper level of of something that I love, and showing that by the end, like he's he's worked his way out of that, and it's it's relatable and authentic. I think even even with all the bluster around it, totally. Chris, uh, my last question for you is: Is there any words of wisdom? And by the way, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Is there any words of advice you can give to younger writers that want to break in or just starting out, or anything that you, that you wish someone had told you when you were just starting out? I have I have two things. The first is that. Um, making it isn't a destination in this business. It's a journey. It's, it's making it is every little victory you have along the way. It's getting on a show. It's even pitching a joke in the room as an assistant. Like that's part of making it. And, and you don't realize it at the time. Maybe you still feel like I need to get to this level. I need to get to that. But even when you get to the level, like, like, I guess I am, it's, it's, it doesn't feel like, <laughs> it doesn't feel like I've made it. I, I, I still, you still have mortgage and bills to pay. I still look at things and I'm like, I calculate my expenses and be like, how long can I do this until I can't afford to live in this town anymore, basically? And that takes me to another piece of advice that I heard on a different podcast at some point that's basically like, you got to look at it like a poker game. You look at it like a poker tournament where it's not about winning every hand. It's about how long can you stay at the table? 
So how can you continue to, to survive in this industry um, and get to the next job and, and get to the next payday and get to that situation and get to the point where you're doing things that you really like to do? And, and that's not always easy to take, but that's the truth of it. That's what it's like in the industry where you don't know when your next job will be. And if there will be a next job is super scary. Yeah. But you have to understand that you can't just blame yourself for that. I think when I was younger, I definitely would say like, if I can't succeed in this business, it's because of me. But the industry changes so much and it's so hard to, to, to survive that you can't, you can't predict what's going to happen and what's going to be out there for you. So you just have to take the pressure off yourself to some degree and just do the best you can. And my advice to do that is plant a lot of seeds. So I'm told you I'm taking out like multiple comedy things, uh, drama things, like any like any connections I can make to things are what I'm putting together. So yeah. I'm putting those things together and and thinking like I don't know what's going to bloom, I don't know what's going to blossom. I'll reap them when they do. But for now, I'm just planting a lot of seeds and then and seeing what, what's going to happen, um, and and then going from there. Yeah, I have a very I'm having a very tough time because. To the outside world and my friends that may not work in the industry, they're like, you made a show, dude. You did the thing that like 1% of the writers in this town yeah. want to do. And I don't know if it was naivete, but like the people that work with and for me kind of guaranteed me like things are going to be different now. You're a show creator, you're a job yeah. creator, you're a showrunner. And I'm like, I'm back to square one, you know, and maybe I'm not a back to square one. But I'm back to like the building phase and the planting seed phase. And it's very hard for me because I'm hard on myself where I'm like, what's wrong with me? Yeah. Like, why does nobody want me? Like, I have tried to staff on maybe 30 shows since July. I haven't gotten one interview. Yeah. And there are complications with all of that. But like, I'm literally, I write like handwritten notes, like to Sex Lives of College Girls, to this other show um, that was on Netflix. And like, no one writes me back. And I'm like, is it me? But what I've learned, and, and Laura imparted this to me a little bit. There's like a thousand people applying for all these shows now. Yeah. It used to be like you'd get 30 scripts. On Fairfax, we got like 140. Yeah. And I have to remember that, like, hey Matt, like it it's not you, or maybe it is, but like just keep going. Like you have to keep putting quarters in the arcade. Yeah. I I think the other side of it was so before I was on a million of things, I started like I started trying to develop some things. And um I had taken ideas out before and never really landed anything and didn't have the success that you had certainly at the time of, of, of pitching things and selling things. I was like, what do I have to do? And I would just kind of like, somehow I found this kid on Twitter, Scott Stedman, who's amazing young journalist. He was breaking Trump Russia stories when he was 21 years old, a senior in college. Crazy. He was, he was, he, it was, it's a whole crazy story, his, his life. But I was like, this kid's something like I, there's something here that's a show. So I went to him he lived in Irvine or something. I wrote to him and said, like, hey, would you want to meet up and talk about this? There's potential. I think there's potential for ideas here. And uh, and we got together, and I quickly realized, like, yeah, like, his, this kid's amazing. And um, he already had, I think, probably, like, 50,000 followers on Twitter. One of them was John Cryer, who uh, I had I had met with his, his exec before, Jody, and had a good relationship with her. So I was like, hey, I think I have something for you guys. So we brought Scott in, met with Jody. She loved him, loved the story, loved the potential. We took it to to Scott to uh, to John. He loved it. His wife loved it too. Who's a media person? We're like, we have something here—an hour-long, you know, story about this young journalist, um, um, fictional. And so we put that together as a pitch. We took it to NBC and didn't sell it. But the difference in the room, having John Cryer next to me and having this kid journalist next to me, was insane. And I realized at that point, like. The people you're meeting with to sell stuff meet with writers every day. The last thing they want, they it's so hard to just sell something as a writer. You need to bring something so unique. And for me, at, at the level I'm at, until I've developed several shows or sold several shows, I my feeling is like bring people with me, partner pe partner up with people, and and form this team. Because what I want, my goal in those meetings is to have the person I'm I'm pitching to at the end of the day go home and be tell their husband or wife. You won't believe who I met with today. You won't believe the thing that I can do. And that's never going to be about me as a writer, some guy with an idea. It has to be these connections. And and to me, like that's I think and what I'm banking on right now of like what's gonna uh, uh make a difference is putting these almost like almost like uh what are the what are the agencies packaging? Almost packaging yourself. Yeah. You know, you you you're the writer, you find these other connections, this person's true story and bring that in. 
or this person is a band and they have a story to tell of that. And you, you bring people in who, who these execs aren't used to meeting. Yeah. They don't get exposed to every day. Yep. On the project I'm working on right now, we're lucky enough to have Spring have a LeBron's pod attached. And like that's huge for this, for this project. And it's, it's a difference maker. And so if we can, you can do that, I think your, your chances of selling, because there are hundreds of people pitching these people. You also have to have the good story and all of those things, yeah. of course. But I think that all the other layer of authenticity that you're bringing is just a difference maker. I completely agree with you. You know, me and the two Fairfax guys took out this pitch with CBS Studios. It's a great pitch. It was true to life based on all of us, and it didn't sell. And I looked at the two things I had sold to Network and this thing that I didn't, and I went, well, the first thing I sold had Bill Lawrence attached and Brent Morin, who had been the star of an NBC comedy for three years. The second thing I pitched had Lord and Miller attached, and it was a personal story to my friend Nicole um, that she could speak to. And you, and she was in the room with you? Yeah, yeah. And like, why wouldn't you take a flyer on a Lord and Miller show with a great concept that was funny? And the second time, it was just like me and my two co-writers in CBS Studios. And like, we had pitched The Rock. We had pitched, you know, huge places. And, and we unfortunately didn't partner with any of them. And I feel like that might have been the difference. Well, I think it's, but it can go beyond pods too. I think, honestly, if you think about like someone you know who has an amazing story to tell and say like, I'm, I think your show's, I think there's a story. I think there's a show here. And you bring that person in and you're the storyteller and they're the subject and you've put that together and you take it, you're a lot more likely to sell that than just something about yourself. Yeah. Um, someone who's not a writer in the room, I think is a huge asset. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so. Chris, thank you so much for coming to you do bet, this dude. with me. You are the sweetest. Uh, <laughs> I hope you sell your new pitch. Me too. I'll be rooting for you. Please come back when uh, when you do and we'll, we'll celebrate. There we go. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, dude. 